Good afternoon, everyone. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 27. We'll be looking at 27 in its entirety. We will sneak over to two verses in 28, beginning in verse 1. 1 Samuel 27, this is God's word to us this afternoon. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. On the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines, was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negeb of Judah, or against the Negeb of the Jeremelites, or against the Negeb of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, Lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. Over at 28. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious and heavenly Father, we do thank you for this one day in seven that we have gathered that you have given to us, your people, to enter into a time of rest and refreshment in your word. And we'd ask once again that this afternoon that you would attend your word by your spirit, that you would instruct your people, that you would encourage us 
in the faith that ultimately that this text would point to us to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Instruct us now. We need your help. Comfort us. Strengthen us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, we left off a few weeks back where David had once again spared the life of Saul. After sneaking into Saul's camp at the cover of darkness, Abishai was locked and loaded and ready to put a quick end to King Saul. And yet David, David refused to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed king. And so by taking two symbols, David proved that he was more upright than Saul. David would not take the law into his own hands. He would not avenge himself with blood. He would not repay evil for evil. And as we witnessed a few weeks back, Saul confessed his sin. He affirmed the obedience of David, and he went home. Well, at this point, you would think with this moral victory, David would be feeling very confident right about now. And yet, it's just the opposite. Instead, hopelessness has settled on him like a fog. He knows that he can't keep having these near misses with Saul. One of these days, he is going to get caught He's been very lucky these three times now, but David can't be testing providence like this, or else he's going to lose everything. Besides, with rats like the Ziphites, David at this point can't trust anyone. Not only does Saul have spies everywhere, David's fellow tribesmen of Judah will turn him in and turn him over. To Saul. And so, with no allies, David doesn't feel like he can last much longer. And so, David makes the tough decision to leave Israel. He chooses to seek asylum, listen to me, with the Philistines. Now, as you know, the Philistines are the bitter enemy of Israel. They have been at war with Israel as long as we can remember. And you have to really grasp the gravity of David's decision here. Things are so bleak for him in Israel that he has to go over to the enemy for safety. Brothers and sisters, this is bad. This would be like if things got so bad here in America that you would flee to Hezbollah or to North Korea for safety. Well, as you can only imagine, this would have branded David as what? It would have branded him as a traitor. But it also implies that there's a good deal more of persecution against David than just King Saul. In fact, it reminds us of what David said at the end of chapter 26, that there were these men driving him away from the presence of the Lord, saying, go and serve other gods. His fellow countrymen of Judah were telling David that they wanted nothing, absolutely nothing to do with him. And so this this going 
to the Philistines? Is David being forced into exile? Up until now, David has been a sojourner in his own land, the territory of Israel, but now he is forced into exile. He is banished from the promised land to go and live among the uncircumcised. That is, when you think about it, for him, an idolatrous nation. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to us because we don't really have any religious attachments to our land, at least to not any physical location. But for the, but for the physical nation of Israel, the Lord told them, cling to their covenant inheritance. The land and living in it was a peg for them to hold on to. For them to hold on to their relationship with the Lord, to hold on to their faith. While being driven from the promised land was the worst of all fates. It was the ultimate curse of the old covenant. Even if David knows that this is not the case, everything on the inside is telling him that he is cursed by God. We can't help but to wonder that during this time that the, those agonizing words of Psalm 22 came to, to David's mind. Did he, did he at least start thinking about Psalm 22 where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I cry out to you and you do not answer. I find no rest, scorned by mankind despised by the people, all who seek me, mock me. Yes, this fleeing into enemy territory is not just some strategic move for David. It is an utter act of hopelessness. This is David in despair. Going to the Philistines would be like going back to Egypt. And yet... For his city of asylum that he has chosen, where does he go? He picks Gath once again, King Achish. And as you recall, Gath is Goliath's hometown. Achish was the same king that that David had to act crazy in front of to escape back in chapter 21 when we covered that. That last time, though David tried to find asylum... In Gath, he he barely escaped with his life. The fact that he tries Gath again seems really desperate to us. Yet, this time, David doesn't show up to Achish's front doorstep all alone. Rather, he shows up on the front porch with a fighting force of 600 men. David has grown in size of a very good militia, and his victories all throughout the land, yes, to include the the land of Canaan, the land of the Philistines, it was legendary. In fact, Abishai is the master chief of David's mighty men, those famous mighty warriors of David. They are part of this 600 men. Additionally, David and his men, they bring their households. Now, this includes more than just their immediate families and wives, but whatever extended 
family and whatever possessions they had. And so there are men, there are women, there are children with David. And my point is this. David shows up this time in Gath with a very sizable community, which would definitely afford him a little more safety than going in by yourself, right? And sure enough, what does Achish do here? Achish grants him asylum. He allows his men and David to live in Gath. He gives them a place and he shows them hospitality. Now, We should not think that this setup came free for David. Granting asylum to a foreign defector was common practice in the ancient world. But it was assumed that the defector became like a servant. Asylum came with the price tag of vassalship. And so David and his men became servants of Achish. The promise of loyalty and service in exchange for a place to stay, a place of safety. Now, we are not told here what service David had to perform, but it is clear that he is in the employment of the Philistines. In fact, verse 5 gives uh, gives us a clue. Look at it with me. Note verse 5. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes... Underline that statement right there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So this phrase, if I have found favor in your eyes, this is a formulaic expression that a servant uses to to make a request to a master, to a lord, in this case, to a king, whereby then a servant presents his service as something to be rewarded. It's kind of like if you want a raise at work. You remind your boss about the stellar performance that you have conducted and you have profited and you've given the company a good rate of return on their investment. And so David sets forth his good work and asks for a village. For him and his men to live in. And Achish, according to the text, is well pleased with David. And he grants him this town. By royal grant, Achish gives David the deed to this town or this village called Ziklag. David is now the proud property owner in a foreign land. Now, brothers and sisters, this situation is remarkable And I'm going to geek out a little bit. You guys are going to understand why. You will too. For this land doesn't properly belong to the Philistines. You see, back in Joshua chapter 15, when the lands and the property were being divided up by tribe, Joshua designated Ziklag within the territory of guess what tribe? Judah. This makes Ziklag a part of the promised land. Yet whether it wasn't uh, never conquered or the Philistines recaptured it, regardless, brothers and sisters, this land belongs to Israel. And so here we have Achish granting David a piece of the promised land. The implications of this are astounding. This is truly incredible. 
You see, during David's exile, he is reclaiming the inheritance of the Lord. Ziklag then becomes the property of the kings of Judah. In fact, it tells us long into the future. Now, this is significant because possessing the land was a matter of obedience for Israel. Many of you were in my class in Judges, and you recall as our time in the book of Judges that the Lord told Israel to do what? To conquer and possess the entirety of the promised land. Israel then, not owning and occupying the land, was a sign of her failure. Well, in his exile... David is annexing the land for Israel. The Lord is rewarding his obedience with life in the promised land. Even in David's service to a foreign monarch, the Lord is rewarding his service. Now what begins in Ziklag only continues to grow for us. For now that David is established in Ziklag... And he's gotten settled in. We are told that David spent quite a bit of time there. He spent a total of 16 months in Ziklag. Makes you wonder if David thought he was ever going to get out of exile. Being patient and waiting on the Lord is something we all must learn, especially when we, as the church, are in exile waiting for the promised land. Well, David is learning this, and he's learning this in Ziklag. Make no mistake, David was just sitting around binge-watching Netflix, okay? Rather, he is quite active while in uh, exile. He and his men are starting to make these raids on these foreign tribes in the area. Look at verse 8 with me. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land, listen to this, from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. So the Gershites and the Gerzites, the, excuse me, the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites were semi-nomadic people. These people groups lived among the southern border of Judah from Egypt to Edom. Now David would raid one of these encampments and he would leave no one alive and he would carry off the spoil. And yet we need to ask this question. Why would David do this? I mean, this does seem a little bit risky, right? Well, there are a couple of noteworthy things for us to consider here this afternoon. First, these raids would have increased David's wealth considerably. In fact, after having nothing in the desert for quite some time now, David has become in the possession of a town, and now he is filling it up with cattle and valuables from these raids. And yet, there is more to these raids than just acquiring wealth for his new found village. In fact, there's a line in verse 8 that's going to instruct us here. It says this, And David would strike the land. Highlight it, take notes. David would strike the land. Now this line is taken from Joshua 10, verse 
40. And actually, if you were to read just Joshua 10, all throughout this chapter, really, which is described the conquest of the promised land. The point is this, that it's important to understand that David is imitating Joshua here. In fact, in Joshua 13, the, the Geshurites and the Gersites are mentioned. Joshua at this point is getting old and he has some parting instructions. And the Lord says that there is um, much of the land that still needs to be conquered. This includes the very land where the Gersites lived. The point is that these three groups are under the band. I'll say it another way. They were, they were devoted to destruction. They're living in unconquered promised land. This means that David is doing the unfinished work of Joshua. And in obedience to the Lord, David is doing, listen to me, what the judges didn't do. We spent all that time in Judges to be here right now to see that the coming anointed king is doing the very thing that the judges were meant to do. And that is the conquering of the promised land. And this is why he leaves no one alive. Because the Lord ordered the total destruction of these people in particular. And so once again, this is one of the key duties of the judges and later on the king of Israel. They were to conquer the land for the people of God. And here we can see this obvious contrast with Saul. Yes, Saul had plenty of success in battle. We know this. But one of the major failures of Saul, think about this with me, was his disobedience to destroy totally who? Do you remember? the Amalekites. And for this, Samuel told Saul that the Lord had rejected him as king and that he would give his kingdom to a more worthy neighbor. Well, here is David wiping out the Amalekites. He's doing what Saul failed to do. Saul thought he had superior wisdom over the commandment of the Lord. He rejected the word of God given by the prophet Samuel. And his kingship was was stripped from him to a better servant, David. And David is now fulfilling the role that King Saul should have fulfilled. Here, David who has been rejected by his own people. They have driven him away from the territory of Israel. And yet, think about this with me. In his exile, he is being a good king to these people. He is destroying the very enemies of God. He's conquering the promised land to increase the inheritance of Israel. Brothers and sisters, these these are really good things. These are the things that the true anointed king is supposed to do. Now, what David does next does not seem right to us, and it is worthy of us to consider. What does he do next? He lies. He lies and uses deception to King Achish. 
When David brings some of the spoils to King Achish as a tribute, he tells him that he raided Judah and their allies. He uses the ruse that he is attacking and killing his own countrymen. And Achish, he totally buys it. He buys it completely. For to kill your own people, well, it just doesn't get much worse than this. In fact, Achish thinks that he is a stench. Thomas David is a stench to his own tribesmen, to his own people. Now, the question that nags us a little bit at this point is, is this right for David to do? How can he be so avert? How can he be so devious with his use of deception? I mean, you recall, didn't Abigail say that no evil would be found in David? Well, this may seem as evil, but we should not be so quick as to judge David negatively here. Yes, and I think we've established this, and all you have to do is just read on into 2 Samuel. We know that David is very far from perfect. And we're not surprised to find moral faults in him. We know that he has some. But in this particular situation, the text does not cast a negative moral judgment on David's deception here. And there are a couple reasons for this. For one, although David is Achish's servant, I would like to remind you that the Philistines and Israel are mortal enemies as commanded by whom? By the Lord. As one of the peoples of the Canaanites, the Lord told Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, listen to me, not to seek their good, and he says this, this is the Lord, or to show them pity. There was to be constant hostility between Israel and the Canaanites just as there is enmity between the serpent and the seed of woman, as that will go on. Also, in wartime, I want you to, next point, in wartime, morality does not require full full honesty with your enemy. Secrets and deception is a key weapon of war to save lives. And so, David's deception here should not be seen as negative or bad because this is an act of war. Now, this does not mean that David is totally blameless, but it does mean that David is working for the downfall of his enemies. It also means that David is, um, although that David is serving the Philistines, listen to me, and this is probably one of the most important points, he was never a traitor to Israel. From the perspective of Israel during this time, David could have looked like a Benedict Arnold. Think about this with me. He defected from Israel to join whom? The Philistines. This practically looks like apostasy. The other Judeans are probably scoffing at David. Oh, he probably worships that Dagon since he moved over there. And yet, behind the camouflage of betrayal, get a hold of this, David is secretly fighting for Israel. He is conquering the promised land. David is like a covert spy. Achish thinks David is 
his servant forever, but all the while David is preparing to bring the Philistines down. And this understanding of David's deception is crucial for what happens next for us. At some point near the end of David's 16-month exile, the Philistines vote in favor of another all-out war against Israel. Now, for some time, the conflict between the Philistines and Israel have been these low-level raids, these smaller skirmishes. But now, the Philistines, they take action, and they are ready for a nationwide war. And, of course, this means that Achish must muster all of his forces. And in this, he cannot ignore David. And so he orders David to come fight with him. David does, in fact, have an undefeated record. And as far as Achish knows, David has already been fighting against Israel. Achish even gives David a promotion. He's promoted to King Achish's bodyguard. He's second. Now, as readers, we are kind of caught off guard. Will David actually go and fight against Israel? Israel Is David going to actually take Saul out in battle? And yet, in light of David's deception, the double meaning of David's words in verse 2 of chapter 28 become a little more obvious. Look at it with me. Note what David says. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. Achish hears this as David fighting valiantly for the Philistines. But what does David really mean behind this? I mean, he means that that he is going to reveal his plans against Achish. You force me into battle? Okay. Well, you're going to learn what side I'm really on. Yes, David agrees to go to war with the Philistines, listen to me, in order to bring the war to the Philistines. Well, from this, we can see how the Lord uses David's exile to prepare him for the throne. And we are reminded of the essential task of God's anointed king. And it is this, to defeat the enemies of God's people and to conquer the land for them. In short, we see another key of our Lord King Jesus. And we're going to take the remainder of our time to think about this. Yes, as King, Jesus had to conquer the land for you. And He had to subdue all of our enemies. And yet... In the similarity between David and Christ, I want to submit to you that there is a stark contrast in strategy. That is, think about this with me. David subdued his enemies with the sword, and he left no one alive. And yet Christ did not come with the sword, did he? Nor did he come to expand the borders of Judea. Think about this, when John the Baptist asked that he was the Messiah, how did Jesus respond to John? Christ responded with his actions. 
He said, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. And then he said this, the good news is preached. Yes, Christ assaulted the evil one as he bound the strong man and he cast out demons. But Christ brought forth his kingdom, listen to me, by acts of healing, by mercy, and by salvation. In his resurrected glory, what did Jesus say before his ascension? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Christ's royal conquering is first how? By making disciples. So in Revelation chapter 5, when John heard about Jesus, the elder told him, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and he says this, has conquered. John heard that Christ had fulfilled his office as king here. But when he turned to look, what did John see? He saw a lamb. He saw a lamb as though as it had been slain. And the elders and the angels sang this. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He went beyond the borders of Judea and he didn't use a sword. He used his blood. Yes, this is the the kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ. That he conquered you and he conquered me when we were in our sin. How? By mercy. By shedding his blood as a ransom for your sins. This is the glory of our king. By dying on a cross, that He came first in mercy and grace to save you from your sins. This should remind us of what the Apostle Paul says. He says, in Christ, the Father transferred you from the domain of darkness into what? And the kingdom of His Son, the kingdom of light, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. This is what royal conquering looks like with Christ. Christ continues to do this through the church, brothers and sisters. As Paul says in Acts 26, Christ saved him to be a witness both to Jews and to Gentiles. And what effect did the ministry of Paul have? That through Paul, Jesus would open eyes would turn people from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they might receive what? Forgiveness and and a place, a place among those sanctified by faith in Christ. And so, yes, the gospel ministry grants a place to those who believe, a place in Christ. 
Just as David was conquering for God's people, so the gospel of Christ, listen to me, wins a place for us. This is what Christ has done for you. And it's what Christ continues to do through us, the church, as we make disciples, as we come every Lord's Day and sit under the means of grace. Yes, this is why it is so important for us to do the work and support of missions and of church planting. This is us ruling and reigning with Christ. The preaching of the gospel is how the good news grows. The kingdom does not grow through common labor, but it does through the means of grace. Prayer, supporting the church, inviting others to come and sit under the means of grace. This is your good service in the church militant. And it is our high privilege to serve Christ and His gospel For this is how His conquering grace and mercy spreads. This is how the church is to be a light in a dark age. You've heard it many times, and I will say it a lot. The church has not been given the sword. We've been given the keys of the kingdom. And so we proclaim a good gospel message, a message of mercy a message of forgiveness, a message of salvation, and that is the power of God unto salvation. And it expands any border. May we rejoice that Christ subdued us. And how did He subdue us? By His love. May we long to see Christ do this more and more. For we, like David, Right now are exiles in a foreign land. But it is God who saves. It's God who saves us, who gives us growth. He gives us peace. Until that full number of the elect are gathered. This is our lot. This is our service. Until the day when Christ will bring us to that everlasting place. The inheritance of of the promised land for us, heaven. This is how Christ is your King and how He rules through us through the mercy of the gospel spread.